This is a Reconstructionist Radio production. Please visit GaryNorth.com forward slash free books to download this book in PDF. The title of this book is That You May Prosper, Dominion by Covenant by Ray R. Sutton. Copyright 1987, Institute for Christian Economics, Tyler, Texas. Introduction A young Israelite king was sitting on his throne one day. He may have been bored. He may have been worried but he decided to spend his day counting all the money that had come into the treasury. In those times, the money was kept in the temple, so he sent a messenger to perform the task. When the messenger arrived, he and a priest began to calculate the king's wealth. As they moved the great chests of gold back and forth, the king's messengers found a strange object. He found something resembling a time capsule. The messenger called the priest. Slowly, they unrolled the ancient manuscript found inside. In it was a message from their ancestors. Both knew immediately what had been found. They wept as their eyes raced through the document reading of a time gone by that obligated them to greatness. The king had to be told. The priest was selected to take the document to him. At first he walked, then he ran. The guards outside the king's palace were instructed to move out of the way, for he had a message from the past. Running into the king's court and interrupting the proceedings, the priest bowed and held the document up to the king. Reaching out, the teenager clasped the manuscript in his hand. He stood frozen like a statue for what seemed like time without an end. Everyone in this great court covered with gold, silver, and precious jewels waited speechlessly to see what the king was going to do. Then he looked up. But his eyes did not meet the numbered faces encircling him. They stretched up to the heavens. Then he cried out before all the court, God, forgive me and my people. He tore his clothes and he fell on his face, pleading for God's mercy. What had happened? King Josiah had discovered the book of the covenant. Second Kings chapter 22, verse 8 and following. What was it? Judging by Josiah's response to this book... 2 Kings chapter 22 verse 3 verse 13 2 Chronicles chapter 34 verses 3 through 8 it was the book of Deuteronomy itself the summary of the covenant Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law Deutero equals twice plus nami equals law stated in the form of a covenant he read so keep the words of this covenant to do them that you may prosper in all that you do Deuteronomy chapter 29 verse 8 Josiah however did not stop at the reading of the covenant he reinstituted it and brought about great reform in his society. Only then could he begin to challenge his culture. Only then could he reestablish the dominion of the Lord. Only then could he truly prosper. For his commitment to God's law, God identified Josiah as the greatest king in the history of Israel, not David and not Solomon. And before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might, according to the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. Second Kings chapter 23, verse 25. Rediscovering Our Biblical Roots That You May Prosper is a book about the covenant, what it is and how it works. It is designed to help create what happened in Josiah's day. Like his time, covenant has been forgotten. Unlike his day, it has not yet been rediscovered. Yes, a lot of Christians talk covenant and talk accountability, but the doctrine simply has not been discussed in terms of what the Bible actually teaches. Covenant is the answer at a time when we stand at the threshold of the death of a culture. In the late 1960s, I began to read Francis Schaeffer. He came to a conservative cemetery in my hometown. I will never forget the day I heard him. I will never forget a statement he made that has kept ringing in my ears for nearly the last 20 years. He said, We are at the end of Christian civilization, and therefore we are at the end of civilization. Many would not agree with the premise of his comment, but how many would really contest that we are at the end of a culture? Most people sense it. Most Christians know it. Most secular intellectuals won't deny it. And I think the general populace would not hesitate to admit that the Christian moors that undergirded this culture for the last 200 years are all but gone. 
No doubt many would applaud this decline, but Christians are left asking, how do we recover our biblical roots? Unfortunately, I don't hear a clear solution coming from any sector. Some say evangelism, many say small groups, a few say liturgy, others cry for political action. Certainly all of these have their proper place, but when are we going to look at the Bible for a model? When are we going to say, does the Bible tell of a time like ours when biblical influence was lost and then rediscovered? When are we going to look to see how they, the people of the Holy Scriptures, did it? I believe the Bible tells of a time such as that. The Bible really does have the answer and the solution is right in front of our noses. It is the covenant and Josiah's experience tells the story. Our forefathers knew the story. It's time we remember what they knew. Our Biblical Heritage We should never forget the covenant was the single most important theological idea in early America. Not only the Puritans, but virtually all Protestants came to the New World with this concept at the center of their theology and practice. Congregationalists, Presbyterians, Anglicans, Continental Reform groups, and Independents were children of the Reformation. Federal theology, as covenant thinking had been called on the continent, had taken root at the time of the Middle Ages. In many ways, the dawnings of the Reformation was a revival of this ancient theology. Slowly it seeped into European and British cultures, but not deep or fast enough. When these diverse yet similar Protestant groups came to America, they implemented what many Europeans had wanted for centuries. Their rationale for applying the covenant was simple, the members of the Godhead related by covenant. Since heaven is a model for earth, as the Lord's Prayer says, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Matthew chapter 6 verse 10 Man is supposed to organize all of his life according to the same structure. People from England and the continent were ready for this kind of society. They came to the New World because it offered what they had never been able to find in Europe, a society based not on status but contract. Their theology mandated it and they acted on it. The idea of a society based on the theology of the Reformation quickly spread through their literature. These were people with a religion of the book, the Bible, and consequently they were heavily involved in the printed word. Because of this, the covenant idea probably became so pervasive. Two groups of note are the Puritans and the Anglicans. The Puritans produced thousands of sermons, books, and tracts. The covenant theme occurs often. One of the first books ever published in America was a book on the covenant, the Gospel Covenant, by Peter Bulkley. Other works basically reflected the same point of view, but maybe their greatest influence was expressed in their creeds. In whole or in part, these statements of faith found their way to many different religious groups in America and England. As covenant dominated their documents, the idea was able to cross denominational boundaries. The Anglicans were also quite influential in spreading covenant theology. Anyone who doubts the theological links between the Puritans and the Anglicans in 17th century colonial America should consult Perry Miller's essay on Religion and Society in the Early Literature of Virginia. The Anglicans' commitment to good Christian literature was commensurate with their dedication to the thought of the Reformation. In 1695, Thomas Bray wrote Proposals for Encouraging Learning and Religion in the Foreign Plantations. What he really had in mind was books. The result was the Society for Promoting Christian Knowledge, SPCK, in 1699. The king gave them their charter. One of the greatest movements in the history of the church began. The SPCK disseminated a mountain of Christian literature in this part of the world. What kind of books? Mostly the print coming out of and influenced by the Reformation. Thus the Anglicans, like the Puritans, created a conduit through which federal theology poured into the New World. Christians in the West have forgotten this story. They have forgotten the covenant. Somehow they must rediscover it. But what in particular about the covenant shaped society? There were five key concepts. Key Covenant Concepts First, the covenant taught a transcendent view of God. Not that he is distant, but that he is distinct from his creation. This distinction meant God is Lord over everything. Men are not imbued with deity. 
Consequently, no one man or sphere, family, church, or state, is allowed to have absolute power. Europe had been dominated at times by clans, ecclesiocracies, and monarchical dictators. The application of God's transcendence did not allow any of these to have total control. It brought about a true separation of institutional powers, all ruled directly by God. Second, the covenant taught a concept of authority, or hierarchy, based on representation. According to this system, people should be able to choose the kind of government over them. Once chosen, however, as long as the representatives met their duties, they were to be obeyed. Third, covenant meant a society based on ethics, particularly the laws of the Bible. The covenant involved ethics in the very stuff of grace itself, Peter Bulkley said. We must for our part assent unto the covenant, not only accepting the promise of it, but also submit to the duty required in it, or else there is no covenant established betwixt God and us. We must as well accept of the condition as of the promise, if we will be in covenant with God. These colonial Christians did not believe in work salvation, rather in a salvation that works. Miller remarks that their view of ethics included more than individual honesty and charity, it included participation in the corporate organization and the regulation of men in the body politic. Men were judged, in other words, on the basis of behavior, no matter what their status. This gave good people a true chance to have upward mobility, something they could have never had as readily in the old world. Fourth, the covenant implemented a system of sanctions based on an oath. Once an oath was made, a man was expected to keep it. Any violation met serious sanctions. Perjury in the realm of the state was in many cases punishable by death. Adulteration of the marriage oath met the same end. Apostasy from the church covenant resulted in banishment. The oath and the sanctions that enforced it were an effective stabilizing factor in American culture. Fifth, the covenant implied a system of continuity based on something other than blood relations. The Puritans attempted to make experience the test for church membership. Also, a person had to be a member of the church to be able to vote. Granted, these were misapplications. The first misapplication, experimentalism, led to the halfway covenant, in which the grandchildren of church members were baptized, even though their parents had never joined the church formally. Though baptized, these halfway covenant children were not regarded as church members. The other misapplication, political, corrupted the church. Nevertheless, we do find hints of an extremely important aspect of a society rooted in contract and not in status. The mechanism of contract provided social continuity and not blood or class. America, more than any other culture, had become a place of opportunity for the little guy. These seminal ideas of the covenant shaped American society. They created the strongest nation in the history of man. As they have diminished, so has every sphere, family, church, and state. A brief overview of these institutions in light of our five basic concepts demonstrates what the loss of covenant has done to modern society. First, God is transcendent. He directly relates to each sphere of society. Family, church, and state are not stacked on top of each other. The family does not have to go through the state, nor the church, to get to God. This gives the family institution a sacred character. No longer is the family viewed this way. The state has crippled its God-given powers. A civil judge once said, a civil judge once said, whilst marriage is often termed by text writers and in decisions of courts a civil contract, it is something more than a mere contract. It is an institution. By this he meant that the family is a covenant. But the state does not believe this way anymore. The family is under attack from the state and society at large. Who can doubt the family's loss of sacredness? Now other gods rule it. Second, as for authority, most families are not sure who's in charge. There was a time when the father was the head of the house. Everyone knew it. Everyone acknowledged it. But the advent of the working mother has created a conflict. It's not the 1950s anymore. High inflation and debt have changed the economics of Western culture. A collapsing economy has forced woman to go to the marketplace. 
When she does, she starts to bring in a sizable portion of the family income, maybe as much or more than the husband. This threatens the relationship and the war begins. The rise of wife abuse statistics indicate the extent of the conflicts. War has been declared in the home. It remains to be seen whose authority will take charge. Third, the covenant laid out a clear sense of right and wrong, ethics. The first colonists believed in the morality of the Bible, an objective standard, and every family was raised on this morality. Today, the family has lost this sense of right and wrong. Its children are indoctrinated with values training in public schools. The philosophical background for such training comes straight out of the Humanist Manifesto 1 and 2. Students are taught, we affirm that moral values derive their source from human experience. Ethics is autonomous and situational, needing no theological or ideological sanction. How frightening it is to think that the future leaders of our civilization will believe this way. Fourth, it used to be that when a couple said their vows before God and man, their oath was taken seriously. Divorce was socially unacceptable. Our times tell us something about how people feel about their marriage oath. 38% of all marriages in the United States fail. 79% of those people will remarry, and 44% of these second marriages will fail. The fifth area of the covenant is continuity. Most families cannot maintain the bond implied by this word. Indeed, studies indicate that Christians are not doing well at raising up a godly seed. They are losing their children to the government school system. They are losing them to the humanists who write the screenplays for television shows. They are even losing them to the humanists who teach in Christian colleges. Also, the rapid death of the family business points to the loss of continuity. Each year, a growing number of family businesses is terminated, not because there are no living heirs, but because the heirs are not interested. Some students of the small business believe this is one of the largest causes for the collapse of the small business. At one time, the family was understood as a covenantal unit. The loss of this idea has had staggering effects. The five foundational concepts of covenant have proven to be critical to the family's life or death, sickness or health. It seems that as the traditional marriage vows have been altered or destroyed, in sickness and in health, for richer, for poorer, till death do us part, so has the entire institution. But the family is not the only institution that has lost its covenantal moorings. The State The New Deal, the Great Society, and all the other social innovations of our progressive society have failed. Why? These programs are products of a government in violation of basic covenantal principles. First, the state has attempted to become transcendent. This assumption of the role of God has been the Second American Revolution, title of John Whitehead's insightful work. Today's foremost Christian constitutional authority, lawyer and author, his thesis is clear. The judicial procedures of the past 100 years have so completely reinterpreted the Constitution that the intent of the original 1776 American Revolution has been lost. He refers to a comment made in 1907 by Supreme Court Justice Charles Evans Hughes, the Constitution is what the judges say it is, and compares it to one made in 1936 by the Third Reich Commissar of Justice, a decision of the Fuhrer in the express form of a law or decree may not be scrutinized by a judge. In addition, the judge is bound by any other decisions of the Fuhrer provided that they are clearly intended to declare law. Today the Supreme Court has become our Fuhrer. We are left wondering who really won World War II. Second, these quotes indicate confusion over authority. The representative concept was a covenantal idea, as we shall see in greater detail later. The magistrate was to represent God and the people. It could easily be argued, however, that we no longer have a functional representative system. The Supreme Court, a group of appointed-for-life officials, has the real power. The most recent example is the infamous Roe v. Wade ruling, January 1973. After the states failed to pass pro-death amendments in the early 1970s, the Supreme Court still made death the law of the land. Do we have a representative system? Where were our elected representatives? 
The Congress has the right to overturn the future effects of any ruling by the Supreme Court simply by withdrawing the Court's appellate jurisdiction. By removing the abortion question from the federal courts and the Supreme Court, the issue would be returned to the states, where it began and where all other capital penalties are enforced. Abortion is murder. Murder is a capital crime, therefore. So where were our elected representatives? Evidently, we have an authority crisis in our land. Third, America was originally built on a clear sense of right and wrong. There was fixity of law or ethics. Not so any longer. Whitehead explains this loss of fixity of law and absolutes above men in the following comment. Justice Hughes' statement, quoted above, was representative of a clear break with the American legal past. His view of law deviates from the American concept of constitutionalism, limited government under the rule of law. This concept was laid down in the colonial documents, including both the Declaration of Independence and the United States Constitution. But in its adoption of the English common law, which applied acceptable biblical principles in judicial decisions, the Constitution was acknowledging that a system of absolutes exists upon which government and law can be founded. Moreover, under constitutionalism, the people are governed by a written document embodying these principles and, therefore, not by the arbitrary opinions to be found in the expressions of men. Fourth, the concept of oath has been almost completely destroyed by attacks on the use of the Bible to administer it. If men do not swear by God, there is nothing transcendent to enforce the oath. There are no real sanctions. So we are left asking, where is social justice in our land? Crime is up. On the other hand, the state is slow to respond to the fears of the average American. Crime is high on everyone's list of American crises. It seems that one has to commit a multiple killing before the ancient law, an eye for an eye, is honored. On the other hand, some Americans are prepared to take matters into their own hands. More and more vigilante movies appear each year. Handgun sales are higher than ever. Self-defense courses are full. All sorts of protection devices are being installed. As one drives through the affluent yet barred-windowed sections of cities, perhaps he asks himself, who's really in prison in this society? No oath, no sanction, no justice. The innocent are captives to thugs in high places. Fifth, the state faces a huge crisis over the continuity question. It has to do with immigration laws. I have already mentioned that the Puritans attempted to get around a blood basis of continuity by only giving the vote to church members, and that they were unsuccessful. Even though they failed, however, they had the right idea. The vote should not be on the basis of blood, yet the way the Constitution was written hindered what the Puritans wanted. If a person is born in America, he will be allowed to vote at age 18. Blood, not covenant, actually forms political continuity in the U.S. It is not a question of citizenship. Birth should entitle one to this status. But authority to vote should have some covenantal qualifications. Someone can be born in the country but be totally at odds with the American system and yet have full voting privileges. This has always created a dilemma for preserving the ideals of the Founding Fathers. Again we see that the decline of covenant thinking has changed a major institution. The state today is not the same as it was when our nation was established. To become a truly Christian civilization, it must return to the covenant. Church Finally, the church has also been influenced by the decline of covenant thinking. God is transcendent. Not only should he be lord over the family and state, but certainly he should be recognized as such in the church. He is supposed to be the head of the church. When he is not, the church is left open to attack. The state becomes lord of the church. Anyone who doubts the state's lordship should consider how many churches are 501c3 organizations. They have sought tax exemption, yet the law says such exemption is automatic for churches. In effect, they have gone to the state to ask for permission to exist. The implication, the church no longer takes instructions from the true head. It goes through an alternate priesthood, the IRS. The whole issue of authority has come into the church. Do church officers have any real authority? Does God hear them? Do the people hear them? 
I know of a church where it was discovered that one of the leaders was leading a double life. When he came to church, he was a good husband and a loving father. Meanwhile, he was leading the life of a gambler and adulterer across town. The pastor wanted to have the man removed. Members objected and instead removed the pastor. How about ethics in the church? Does the church know the difference between right and wrong? Probably not. For decades, a certain theology was taught that Christians are not supposed to obey the Ten Commandments. The thinking goes, that's in the Old Testament. God was one way in the Old and another in the New. I'm not under law, but grace. Now, after so many years of this kind of thinking and preaching, Christians do not know how to live. Take a look at the number of large churches in your town that are involved in the pro-life movement. This issue should be fairly clear-cut. Killing babies is wrong, right? I imagine that your town is like all the rest. The big churches are not interested in the pro-life issue. They will not take a stand because it is too controversial. They are not motivated to take a stand because they do not know right from wrong. They really do not believe abortion is murder. If they did, they would call for the death penalty for abortionists and abortion-seeking mothers. How else is murder to be treated in Old and New Testaments? Romans chapter 1, verses 29 through 32. Now we come to the areas of the oath and sanction in the church. Church membership is serious. Most churches require some sort of membership commitment and or vows, but the real test of the oath of allegiance to the church is discipline. Just mention the word and no one knows what you are talking about. Jesus taught that some may have to be put out of the church. Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 18. When was the last time you heard of a church doing such a thing? Is this because everyone in the pew or pulpit is so good? Hardly. Recently in Oklahoma, a woman was excommunicated for adultery. As a matter of fact, she committed adultery with the mayor of the city. Her behavior scandalized the gospel of Jesus Christ. She could have been forgiven, of course, but she did not want repentance. She wanted to live in open sin and have all the benefits of a member in good standing. The church cast her out. She sued the church and won. The state upheld her violation of a sacred oath to the church. Finally, continuity has also been a concern in the church. The church has faced the problem of maintaining continuity of belief in the midst of diverse religious opinions. Most churches give voting privileges to anyone who can commune. But since not everyone who communes believes the same way, yet all adult members have the power to vote, the church tends to drift toward the lowest common doctrinal denominator. I have heard of a church where a group of Masons joined. They brought in many of their friends. Eventually they controlled the vote and voted to shut the church down. It was turned into a Masonic Lodge. Even if this is not true, it is certainly possible. The solution is to separate voting from communing privileges. Most churches, however, are not willing to take this kind of action. So the church, along with the other two institutions, has declined. The great concepts of the covenant have slowly been set aside. If they are to be redeemed, covenant is the answer. But if we do not answer what it is and how it works, we will not be able to restore our world. Like King Josiah, we have to discover, understand, and implement it. And how we need to find the covenant. Just go to a Christian bookstore and ask for a book on the covenant. I dare say that you could probably find one sooner in a secular bookstore. We are a generation that has lost the covenant. We do not know what it is, we do not understand it, and we certainly do not know how it works. Ironically, this is the single most important biblical concept in the history of our civilization. We have lost the most valuable information that has contributed to our national and personal success. This brings me to the main concern of that you may prosper. The Covenant's Structure How do we discover the covenant? We have to be convinced that it is the central organizing principle of the Bible. The only way to come to this conclusion is to understand the covenant itself. If we do not know what a covenant consists of, we will never be able to see it in all the segments of the Bible. Then, after we know the meaning of a covenant, we can consider how it works. So, that you may prosper has two parts, covenant and dominion. My primary purpose in the covenant section is to define the covenant. 
the book of Deuteronomy is a model, a place where all of its parts can clearly be seen. Deuteronomy is to the covenant what Romans is to systematic theology. But how do we know Deuteronomy is a covenant? Moses says, He declared to you his covenant, which he commanded you to perform, that is, the Ten Commandments, words. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 13. Deuteronomy is the second giving of the Ten Commandments, a new covenant, so to speak. Moses says of the book as a whole, Keep the words of this covenant to do them, that you may prosper in all that you do. Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 9. Deuteronomy is definitely a covenant document. Significantly, scholarship of the last few decades has uncovered the similarity between Deuteronomy and other ancient Near Eastern Covenant treaties, usually called suzerainty treaties, Hittite, 16th through 13th centuries BC, and Assyrian, 8th through 7th centuries BC. Suzerains were ancient kings who imposed their covenant treaties on lesser kings called vassals. The structure of these treaty documents is not identical to Deuteronomy, but close enough to help us better understand its structure. Suzerainty covenants had six parts. Suzerainty Covenants 1. The Preamble Like an introduction, it declared who the suzerain king was as well as his great power. 2. The Historical Prologue A historical summary of the suzerain's rule. In short, the one who controls history is lord and demands complete submission. 3. Stipulations These were the specific laws of conquest to be observed, the stipulations being the very means of dominion. Also, they distinguished the servants of the suzerain from the other people of the world. 4. Blessing and Cursing This section outlined the ceremony where an oath was taken, receiving sanctions in the form of blessing and cursing. The character of this oath was self-maledictory. The vassal swore his allegiance to the suzerain. It is called self-maledictory because the vassal condemned himself to death if he broke the covenant. In other words, if he was faithful, he was blessed. If unfaithful, he was cursed. 5. Successional Arrangements the covenant document also specified successors to the suzerain so that the vassal could pledge his allegiance to them. Another feature is the enlisting of witnesses, often heaven and earth, to the sealing of the covenant. 6. Depository Arrangements The covenant also stated how and where the covenant document would be stored and preserved. In the event there was a breach of covenant, this document could be produced to begin a process of prosecution against the offending vassal, usually called a covenant lawsuit. The Biblical Covenant in Deuteronomy has five parts. It preceded the suzerainty treaties and was not a copy of them. The suzerains copied the Biblical pattern to form geopolitical covenants. Deuteronomy, on the other hand, was the restatement and expansion of the Ten Commandments. Not only does Moses say as much, Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 13, but the parallel between the five-fold pattern in Deuteronomy and a double five-fold pattern in the Ten Commandments demonstrates the connection. Nevertheless, studies in suzerain treaties have been helpful in understanding the basic structure of the Biblical Covenant. I have used them in this regard, especially the work by Meredith G. Klein. Therefore, let us briefly overview the five points of covenantalism. The Deuteronomic Covenant True Transcendence Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 1-5 through 5. Klein and others point out that the covenant begins with the preamble. But what does the Biblical preamble of Deuteronomy teach? How we find that God declares His transcendence. True transcendence does not mean God is distant, but that He is distinct. Hierarchy Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 6, through chapter 4, verse 49 The second section of the covenant is called the historical prologue. Suzerain treaty scholars point out that in this section of Deuteronomy, the author develops a brief history of God's sovereign relationship to His people around an authority principle. What is it? And what does it mean? Briefly, God established a representative system of government. These representatives were to mediate judgment to the nation, and the nation was to mediate judgment to the world.
Ethics, Deuteronomy 5 through 26. The next section of the covenant is usually the longest. The stipulations are laid out. In Deuteronomy, this section is 22 chapters long. Deuteronomy chapters 5 through 26. The Ten Commandments are restated and developed. These stipulations are the way God's people defeat the enemy. By relating to God in terms of ethical obedience, the enemies fall before his children. The principle is that law is at the heart of God's covenant. The primary idea is that God wants his people to see an ethical relationship between cause and effect. Be faithful and prosper. Sanctions. Deuteronomy chapters 27 through 30. The fourth part of Deuteronomy lists blessings and curses. Deuteronomy chapter 27 through 28. As in the Suzerain Treaty, Klein observes that this is the actual process of ratification. A self-maledictory oath is taken and the sanctions are ceremonially applied. The principle is that there are rewards and punishments attached to the covenant. Continuity. Deuteronomy chapter 31 through 34. Continuity determines the true heirs. This continuity is established by ordination and faithfulness. It is historic and processional. The covenant is handed down from generation to generation. Only the one empowered by the Spirit can obey and take dominion. He is the one who inherits. The final principle of the covenant tells who is in the covenant or who has continuity with it, and what the basis of this continuity will be. These five points of covenantalism are the foundation of that you may prosper. As I have said, it has two parts, covenant and dominion. In the covenant section, I spend the first five chapters explaining the five points of covenantalism in detail. In the next half, I move to their application. Dominion. The subtitle of this book is Dominion by Covenant. After we have assessed the covenant, we need to ask, how does it work? It is my thesis that covenant is the mechanism for dominion and success. After all, Moses says, keep the words of this covenant to do them, that you may prosper in all that you do. Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 9. If we really believe the Bible, then covenant is the key to daily living at every level. In the dominion section, I begin with a comparison of the cultural mandate. Genesis chapter 1 verses 28 through 30 and the Great Commission Matthew chapter 28 verses 16 through 20 some Christians do not understand their commission from the Lord it is a renewal of the cultural mandate it has the covenantal structure it means Christians are to take dominion by means of the covenant having established that dominion is by covenant we get down to specifics I concentrate on the three institutions of biblical society family church and state and I show how they were intended to function according to the covenant then I also point out historical examples from our own history. Someone might think that this covenant structure is overly idealistic. It is not. It has been tried before. It has been successful. The covenant is practical. Finally, I conclude the book with a brief summary on how to apply the covenant to society at large. I call it little by little. I don't want the reader to think we can impose this covenant concept on our culture by force, so I touch on the role of the witness, both in evangelism and in filing covenant lawsuits. After a short consideration of evangelism, seeing so much has already been written on this subject, I focus on the lawsuit. Very little has been said recently about this idea. I rely on the prophet Hosea as a guide, because his book follows the covenantal structure. But more importantly, the prophet shows us how he used the covenant to bring a covenant lawsuit against the wicked. From this chapter, you will learn how to defeat the wicked when you are undercapitalized, outclassed, and undermanned. So, that you may prosper has two parts, covenant and dominion. When you finish, I hope you will see life differently. Perhaps covenant will have real, practical, life-changing meaning in your life. If our society could think and live this way, we could renew our forefathers' errand in the wilderness and change it into a garden. We could then see again the days of the new and final Josiah, a glorious rule by King Jesus. 
The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit ReconstructionistRadio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.